If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to Romans 6, 1 to 7. If you haven't got a Bible, that's not a problem. Uh, As usual, I'll be projecting it up on the screen later. Good morning. Welcome to Jubilee. If you're a visitor here once again, uh, thank you for coming along. Keep coming. We have people from Alpha here as well, so that's good. Be part of us. Keep coming along. Be part of us. That's an invitation right there, whether you trust in Jesus or not. Yeah? We, uh, this is a church. This really is a church, as you can see, as we saw on the front this morning, for everyone. I genuinely believe that. And actually, more and more, this church will look like a church for everyone. Over the last few weeks, we've been um, uh, moving through our latest sermon series, Believe, uh, looking at what the Bible says about some of the key areas of why we believe what we believe and how it makes a difference in our Christian lives. We've looked at God, we've looked at repentance and faith, the tool that God gives us to shape us. We've looked at amazing grace, God's amazing grace, being a new creation, how God changes us in Christ. Important stuff, life-changing stuff. That's why we're doing it, actually. And so this morning, we're going to continue that series uh, with yet another um, foundational part, essential foundational part of what it is to be a Christian. And that is the whole picture um, of water baptism. So that's what we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. So let's read, read it, shall we? Romans 6, um, verses 1 to 7. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's ludicrous. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Not just have a new life live a new life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will cer- For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly, absolutely also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the wonderful sin buster in our life. I thank you, Lord, that you remove all guilt and shame. I thank you, Lord, that you look at our sins so seriously, so, so seriously, that you sent your son to die a gruesome death on the cross so that he received what we deserved and we received what Uh, what we didn't deserve. I thank you, Lord, for that amazing grace. And as we talk about baptism this morning, I pray, Lord God, for those who have been baptized as a believer. I pray, Lord God, for those people um, that as the years go by, we keep coming back to our baptism, understanding what it means and for for it to propel us in faith for the journey ahead, for us, for it to fight the battles that Um, are ahead, for us to live a joyful life in you. And for those who've not been baptized, for those who are not Christians, I pray, Lord God, that we would see the importance of your cross, 
that we have died to sin and we've been resurrected to life, as that passage says. And I pray that that truth by your Spirit breaks our heart so that we may come to you humbly, that those people may come to you humbly and respond to the life-giving joy news of Jesus. Amen. So, over the years, I've spoken about water baptism or heard others speak about it. I'm just going to raise this a bit higher. Uh, I've noticed that it can, over the years, as we've been, as I've heard people and I've spoken about it, I've noticed that sometimes it can be kind of a bit of a side issue, if you like, a not very important issue, the way we communicate it. Uh, it's kind of just a symbol, just a sign, just a tradition. But do you know what? When, when I read the Bible, when I read the many people coming to Christ, being baptized in the book of Acts there, when I hear Jesus' last and crucial command, his commission to his believers before he leaves the earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When I hear Peter at Pentecost so boldly explaining how to respond to the phenomenal, mind-blowing power of God that thousands at that time had just witnessed in one go. He says, crystal clear, repent, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. When I read these things, I feel that somehow we have lost a bit of the wonder and excitement and cruciality, if that's a real word, of what water baptism is about. John Piper, uh, a Baptist minister in America, John Piper writes this, talking about, talking about baptism means talking about how Jesus taught us to express our faith in him and his great salvation. We show this faith, we say this faith, we signify this faith <coughs> and symbolize this faith with the act of baptism. So don't have small thoughts about baptism. Have large thoughts, great thoughts about a great reality. What is that great reality? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified to bear the sins of billions and raised to give them everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. Wow. He has a big picture of baptism, doesn't he? So I'm asking God the Holy Spirit this morning to help me to get you caught up in this great reality by a spirit making your heart rise to that. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, and I'm not talking about as a baby before you knew what you believed, if you haven't been baptized as a believer, then talk to us. We'll talk about it and, we'll get, and hopefully we'll get you to uh, be baptized. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I believe God wants to get your attention by this wonderful, dramatic picture of what it is to love and trust as, uh, Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's what baptism signifies. So listen up, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. So three things as usual. What does water baptism look like and why? That's the first point. Secondly, what does uh, water baptism radically display in our lives? And thirdly, who do we baptize? What does baptism look like? What does baptism display? And who do we baptize? So firstly, let's go. What does baptism look like and why? Well, uh, uh, as we say often, I remember Simon talking about this not ju just a few weeks ago. Um, well, 
The Greek word for baptism, baptizio, is a word which means dunk. It means slosh. It means submerge, immerse, saturate, soak. Get it? In the Bible, it seemed to require loads of water, not sprinklings, not splatterings, not little dip dippings or wettings like we see in different settings for the sake of convenience, but full dunking, soaking immersion. John 3, 23 tells us, now John was baptizing, John the Baptist, was baptizing at Enon near Salim because, because there was plenty of water there and people were coming and being baptized. At Jesus' baptism, it says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, soaking wet. At Acts, uh, in Acts 8.38, when Philip baptizes a eunuch, it says, when they came up out of the water, baptism, as, as I see it in the Bible, was by full dunking. That's why we get our portable swimming pool every time we do our baptisms in. And totally apt, really, because as this passage tells us, baptism represents a kind of funeral, a death, the death and burial of our old self and ways, and then the kind of miraculous, eye-popping resurrection to new life, and to new life in and with Jesus. Amazing, wonderful, shocking. Baptism, if you like, is the faith action that reveals the transforming power of God in us, changing us. What does it say? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Already he's just declared the gospel. And if you understood the gospel, you would ask that question. Someone asked it on Alpha the other day. By no means, says the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> we are those who have died to sin, the burial. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live. Gosh, wow. Baptism is an identity-changing, sin-busting, life-transforming, temptation-equipping picture of our new life in Jesus Christ. It's not that we've suddenly decided to follow a, new, follow a new set of rules and regulations one morning. It's not that we uh, now have a new manual to follow. Let's see if we can get through this and how quickly we can get through this. Let's keep trying harder and harder. No. It's a miraculous, God-shaping change of affairs. Born again, totally new. A death and a resurrection. And so that... Uh, and so that is what full dunking baptism represents. Very public, very dramatic, unforgettable, having clear connotations of cleansing, washing, bathing, newness. You know what? Our world is quite unique when it comes to this. In Jesus' time, people recognized the need to be spiritually washed. In fact, cleansings, immersions, ablutions, effusions, they called them all sorts of things, were often practiced in Jesus' time. Before Jesus went into the temple, the Jews would wash their hands. When Gentiles, those who weren't as important as the Jews, 
They, when they went into the temple, not only did they wash their hands, they had to pour water over all of themselves, a really good scrubbing. The idea that you washed in order to make yourself pure from sin before you came before a holy, righteous God, that had been done for centuries, actually. But our culture is quite unique if we really think about it. We find the whole idea of being called a sinner quite repugnant, that we need to be cleansed. It offends us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What a load of rubbish. Why does it bother our culture, us sometimes, so much? Two answers, I think. Firstly, we don't really get what sin is. We don't see sin like Jesus or God sees sin. We don't see the bigness and vastness and the life-destroying nature of sin. Tim Keller defines sin, a New York pastor, as this. He says, sin isn't just the breaking of divine rules. Sin is the despairing, life-sapping, joy-destroying, depression-breeding refusal to find your deepest identity and worship in your relationship and your service to God. Sin is seeking to get an identity apart from God, the life giver. Sin is making something more central like our careers, our family, our relationships, our pension pots, our positions, what people think about us, our degrees, our iPhones, our designer labels, things like, things like that. Ideals, idols essentially, things we look for for ultimate significance and meaning. Sin is making these things more central and life-shaping than God, the Creator God, our God Himself. A crazy thought, a ludicrous thought, if you really think about it. That's what sin is. It's a heart thing. It's way deeper than just telling lies and swearing and having affairs and punching someone in the face. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Some of those things, all of those things are not good. Try and avoid them, please. But all of those sinful actions are descriptions of a sinful behavior rooted in a heart that fundamentally dishonors, disregards, disobeys our Creator, Father, God. That's Jesus' diagnosis. Mark, uh, in Mark 7, it says, Jesus says, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes them. Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness, all these are vomit from the heart. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. Sin, we don't get it. We don't get the bigness of it. That's one of the reasons why, unlike most other cultures, we don't see the need, or our culture doesn't see the need to be washed. We're okay. Everything's fine. Who are you, God, to tell me what's right and what's wrong? But secondly, despite this delusion, we can't make sense of the world around us, even though we think about sin so little, uh, offensively. What we think... What we think and what we see, if you like, is totally different. You see, 200 years ago, big thinkers like Rousseau, wow, you look good. Rousseau is what, uh, in what's called, uh, very ironically, the enlightenment, enlightenment period of history, were upset by Jesus' view of sin. Rousseau argued fiercely uh, uh, against this. He hated the idea that people believed 
that we are born sinners, that that was the main problem with humanity and society. He actually believed that we're good, that we're born innocent, and it was the stuff outside us that made us who we are and corrupted us from within. Bad education, poor economy, slow scientific and political and social progress. These were the tools that would deal with the problems of the world, that would make everything all right. However, the irony is this, after 200 years, after two world wars, after global terrorism, after being so disillusioned with, all, with a lot of our leaders and a lot of our cultural institutions, the philosophers and the sociologists, if you read that kind of thing, and other clever guys, when you read them now, they're not so sure anymore about Rousseau. Why? Why, despite social, scientific, political advancement and progress, is humanity becoming more and more selfish, less tolerant, less happy? Why is society breaking down at a rate, um, um, breaking down at a rate that we've never seen before? Why are prisons bulging at the seams, ri the riots, the abuse stories, terrorism, divorce rates, teenage pregnancies, depression, stress, violence, and so on and so on? What's happening? We've tried to make our world better. What's going on? Why isn't this working? Rousseau, you must be wrong. And so we kind of live this schizophrenic world out, don't we? A guy called Alan Jacob writes this, modern culture says it has left behind Christianity's repulsive doctrine of original sin. But it also says that it's left Rousseau's naivety about human culture behind too. So where the hell are we? His quote, I didn't say that. We're uniquely confused. But the people of Jesus' day, many of them understood sin. They understood their need for cleansing before God. In fact, many cultures today would get this, uh, would get this need for being washed. I remember as a child, bathing in the river Ganges, uh, um, uh, asking a God for cleansing. Ironic, really, because that's probably one of the most polluted rivers in the world. Yet for the first time in history, when John the Baptist was going around baptizing people, the crowds were shocked. They shouldn't have been. Some were offended. Many were just taken back. Why? Well, for the first time in history, John the Baptist wasn't saying, baptize yourself, go and clean yourself, DIY. Don't know much about that. No, he wasn't saying that. In fact, he was saying quite the opposite. He was saying, no, you cannot deal with it yourself. You can't wash yourself clean. I have to baptize you. And not just Jews, but all of you, everybody. No one's more clean in the kingdom of God. All have sinned and fall short of uh, God's glory equally, just in different ways. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Mother Teresa or a prostitute. You are going to have, this is what John the Baptist is saying, you are going to have to receive your fitness for this king from the hand of another. I'll do it with water. Another one, Jesus, he'll do it with the Holy Spirit. The point of the matter is this. You cannot, cannot save yourself. That was the bombshell. Wow. Shocking people of Jesus' time.
The gospel has a theme in it that's unique to all other world religions and philosophies and thought processes. That salvation is received. It's not achieved. And it's received not on the basis of your merit or my merit or goodness or performance or anything in me or you at all. It's the amazing, compassionate, beautiful grace of Jesus. That's why Christian baptism was so radical in the early church. That's why when some of our Muslim brothers and sisters, I hear them telling stories, start telling their families they're coming to church, that's okay. But when they say they're going to be baptized, that's when the sparks begins to fly in their lives. Baptism is shocking because God's grace is almost surely unbelievable. But it's true. If you're not a Christian here this morning, do you see the state of your heart? Or is the smokescreen of your pride blinding you? Because it blinded me some 16 years ago. Get real. You need God. I need God. And if you don't get that just now, just give it time. Secondly, what does water baptism radically display? This is again remarkable. It's remarkable. See verse 5. For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, baptism is, is also portraying an in us, evidencing in us, that something miraculous has happened. Now we are united, joined to Jesus. We are in Christ. That word united here is a strange word from the, the, word of, the world of gardening, which also I know nothing about. It means we have been engrafted into the root. That's what it's talking about in terms of gardening and stuff. But what does that really mean? Well, first it means that we've been united or engrafted into Jesus' past. That's that that his past is now somehow amazingly, startlingly, miraculously our past. Colossians 3 helps us. It says this, Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. Do you see what he's saying? When God looks on you as a believer, one who trusts in Jesus' saving work of the cross, he sees you in all the righteousness and purity and beauty of, of the Christ, the same Christ who's now seated at the right hand of God. That's why the early church started calling each other Christians, where we're back, little Christ, that's what it means. It was a mictake, actually, uh, as other people called them, little Christ, Christians. But that name struck what? Stuck. Why? Because it was true. Let me help you. Imagine a person who had worked, uh, who has had to work for years and years and years to get rich. He's put in hours. He's given his life. He's grafted hard. He's worked hard. And now he's rich. He has it all. Well done. Now he decides to get married. How do all those riches come to his new wife? By her hard work, by her brilliance and diligence through hours of, of, of working hard? No. It's through 
a legal union, by grace actually, nothing that she has worked for, nothing she necessarily deserved because of her past. No, amazing, radical grace. That's what happened. The fruit of his past is now automatically hers. Romans 6 is shockingly saying everything Jesus Christ has done is now legally true of you. Do you get that? The determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past, but Jesus Christ's past. The Father loves you and accepts you, you, and more than that, delights you, delights in you and has joy in you and sees you having all the beauty and greatness and glory of his Son. Will you start seeing yourself, Jubilee, in the same light? Will you stop sinning? Because it's just not you. That's what the apostle's argument is here. Will you stop feeling condemned and useless and pointless? Because that's not who you are. That's not how God sees you anymore. He sees Jesus in you. You are rooted and grafted into Christ. But that's not all. That's not all about being united in Christ. We're not just united into his past. That's what it, it, uh, Colossians uh, 3 says. But secondly, we are gloriously phenomenally tied up in his future too. Do you see that word slipped in there, certainly? It doesn't say conditionally. It doesn't say if you do the following 10 things. No, it's a done deal. That's what, it is finished. That's what Jesus meant as he died on the cross. You are already connected to this glorious future hope if you trust in him. The Bible teaches us that one day when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new once and for all. Physical creation will be renewed. There'll be a new earth and a new heaven. Wow. The Bible doesn't just describe us as running for our lives, escaping for the, from this world. Therefore, this world doesn't matter. We've just got to put up with it for a while. No, 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 no. The Bible says heaven comes down to earth with rehabilitation, with renewal, with restoration of this world. No more sin or evil anymore, every, where every tear will be wiped away. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. The awesome power of God reshaping the universe. And what's radical about the gospel is that same awesome power of God in the restoration and renewal of the cosmos, the universe, suddenly, extraordinarily comes into your life and begins to work through God, the Holy Spirit, right now. Christianity is not just salvation received, but salvation experienced right now. Is that your experience of life with God? You know what? We come to God with small ambitions. We want inner peace, a job, a girlfriend. We want a little pickup, a kind of spiritual cowpole. We want some inspiration. Oh, but boy, boy, oh boy. God is saying, I am doing much, much, much more than this with you. C.S. Lewis is a bit of a long quote, but C.S. Lewis, and you might be able to read it, put your glasses on. C.S. Lewis 
puts it beautifully in mere Christianity, and he says this, imagine yourself as a house. God comes in to rebuild it. At first, you can understand what he's doing, getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know those jobs need doing, so you're not surprised. But, but presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The answer is he's throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were, do you thought you were going to be made into a little decent cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such joy, energy, wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. The process will be long, oh yeah, and in parts painful, but that is what we are in for, Jubilee. Nothing less. You are a new creation. Keep coming back to all that your baptism is a sign of in your life and get with the truth. Live out, Jubilee, who you are. Baptism is an, initia an initiation into the powerful dwelling, a God-dwelling community life. That is the church. Baptism is a seal that reminds us that we are a child of the King. Baptism hammers home the cleansing and restoring and equipping power, the world-shaping power of God. Do you get it? I believe that for you two guys as you head out into China. God wants to really equip you and encourage you and really impress on you that you are world-shapers through the children and the teachers you're going to meet out in China. I'm going to miss you. But hey, God has a much bigger plan for you. Finally, who do we baptize? I'll keep it simple. Believers. Believers. We baptize believers. We baptize those who have professed their faith in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. There are churches, good churches, good people, who baptize babies. Why? Because they believe that the Old Testament circumcision, ouch, performed a few days after a baby is born, signifying, signifying belonging uh, to the covenant people of God, has in the New Testament been replaced by baptism. That's why they do it. Baptism is the new circumcision, if you like, view. That's the argument. But really, that argument in babies, as I see it, doesn't stand. That's why we don't do it here. If you read in Colossians uh, 2.12, it really it's a re it's one of, this is one of many passages that really helps us understand this, why we baptize believers. It says, having buried with him in baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working work of God, through, in, in the, through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. How can a baby have faith, trust, belief in the working of God? He or she can't. 
It's that repentance and faith now in the New Testament that makes us the new covenant people of God that baptism displays. In Jubilee, we don't have an age limit of when a child can be baptized, but certainly as parents, and I'm just starting to really think about this now, I want to see a clear understanding and genuine belief in the working, saving, life-giving power of the cross in my children's life and your children's lives. Parents, parents, are you praying regularly with your kids? Are you helping them, nurturing them, revealing to them the work of God in their lives and, and, and the life of your family? Are you? I know I bang on about um, the importance of community and try to encourage you all to go out of your way and be part of it, but are you cultivating that desire in your children? Recently, I've noticed more and more of our Eritrean families with kids uh, at Jubilee, in kids' work, at Impact, um, 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 in youth work. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, and I genuinely mean this, thank you. By you encouraging them along, by getting, by getting over the cultural differences, by making that effort to integrate them, you enrich and bring joy and inject more and more of the gospel into my children and my family through my children. Being part of God's diverse family, the church, is a wonderful privilege, which I thank God for regularly. Jubilee, I want to encourage you to go along to Farsi worship. I want to encourage you to go along to the Eritrean, uh, Ethiopian prayer worship nights on Thursdays at Melbourne House. It's wonderful once you get over the differences and really see God the Holy Spirit at work. I want to encourage you as community groups to regularly gather together with other community groups and other people as we increasingly see that happening in our, in our settings. I want to encourage you to come along to our church-wide prayer meetings as they go on the road um, uh, to the different communities and community groups that we represent. Come along to our 7 a.m. Wednesday morning prayer time at Melbourne. Different people. Building a church that is all nations, building a church that is Teesside wide, building a church that is diverse in terms of people's backgrounds and life stories is much harder, is much slower, is much more challenging, requires lots of faith and grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. It does. It's very often very, very messy. But that is the church we're called to be. Gordon Fee writes, uh, of the church. God isn't simply saving diverse individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is miraculously creating a people for his name among whom God can dwell and who in her life together will produce God's life and character in all its unity and diversity and joy. Welcome to the church, everyone. We have kids and teens and babies and grandparents, students and teachers and student teachers. We have clever bods and those in need of support. We have lone parents, singles, marrieds, others who have gone through bereavement and divorce. We have lots who are healthy, some who are in remission, others who are still fighting and believing. We have the employed and the job seeker, the long-term sick and the long-term carer. We have those who legally dish out drugs and those who have illegally dished out drugs. 
We have currently law keepers and previous lawbreakers. We have army guys and doctors and sparks and plumbers and musicians, shelf stackers and managers and till operators and alcohol dependents and counselors. We have one-time atheists and agnostics and skeptics, one-time Muslims and Hindus. We have red and yellow, maybe some green, who are all a bit annoyed that this country is now blue. We have people from Wales and Scotland and Ireland and, uh, and England, people from Eritrea and Ethiopia, Australia, South Africa, Canada, Uganda, India, Nigeria, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, from Zimbabwe, from China, from Spain, from Hong Kong. Jubilee, I thank God daily that this really is a church for everyone. Because of Jesus, his loving, life-giving, power-filled, wall-demolishing, freedom-setting, life-transforming, truth-declaring work of the cross, we are one. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's stand if the band could come out. That's jubilee through and through. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. We're just going to worship. We're going to end there. We're going to worship. We're going to sing one more song. And I just want you to thank God for this church. Thank God for who you are, how he's created you to be. Thank God for... Don't, be, don't start thinking that you need to be someone else. Also, I want, to, I want you to thank God for how he's created you to be. And I want to pray for more and more unity and diversity in this church. Not just colors, not just languages, but all sorts of stuff. God is still on the move in this church. And he is shaking it, shaking it, shaking it up much, much more. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray for this. We ask for this. We ask for grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.